going on? Happy Thursday. Welcome to the program. Pete Callender here. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The North Carolina General Assembly gaveled into session yesterday. It's the long session, which means it lasts just a little bit longer than the short session, as I understand it. Mitch Kokai joins me. He is a senior political analyst with the John Locke Foundation, former uh, radio reporter guy, and uh, even uh, spent some time in television. But we don't like to talk about those days. No, I'm kidding. Mitch, welcome. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me, Pete. And you're right about the long session and short session. If they both go long, they both could seem about as long. The the main difference is the short session tends to start around May of the year, whereas the long session starts in January. But if they're uh, haggling and debating and can't come to an agreement, the sessions can go on and on and on. And some of us remember uh, a couple of decades ago sessions that went all the way to December in one year and October the next year, so it seemed like they were working year-round. Yeah, so for the part-time legislature, uh, it could be much like a full-time gig. Um, so, all right, the, uh, so the, the uh, chambers gaveled into session. They elected their leadership. No big surprises there. Senate uh, President Pro Tem Phil Berger uh, re-elected among his membership, and, right, and uh, 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 Tim Moore re-elected among his, and now Tim Moore becomes the longest-serving Speaker of the House ever in North Carolina history. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, he is now going to be serving a fifth term, so a ninth and tenth year as the Speaker of the State House. And on the other side, uh, Phil Berger has been in the top job in the Senate even longer. He'll be in his thirteenth and fourteenth years in that uh, in that job. The only reason why he hasn't broken a record is that the person who preceded him, Mark Bassnight, spent eighteen years in that top job in the Senate. So if you think about it, over the past 30 years, we've only had two different men lead the state Senate, and some people say that's the most powerful job in state government. So, yeah, and um, well, as I understand it, he's been there now the longest, if I recall correctly, right? Berger is the longest-serving member of the state Senate at this point. Is that right? Do you know? I don't think he is the longest-serving ever. He is No, for now. Long- he he is the longest serving uh, member uh, in the current group, right? And he is the longest serving Senate leader of any Senate leader who's currently leading across the country. Hmm. So he is so he has served in the Senate's top spot longer than any of his counterparts at any other Senate across the country. But he's still several years short of Mark Bassnight's all time record for the longest serving president pro tem in North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, so let me start with uh, people have become, I think, uh, very much more aware of uh, rules in legislative chambers, thanks to the fight up in Washington, D.C. Uh, but this happens at the state house level and the state Senate level as well. They they adopt a set of rules to go by. And uh, there are Democrats that are complaining about these rules that were uh, adopted by uh, in a party line vote over in the House that they say, the Democrats say, is going to uh, really jam them up if they're trying to sustain or trying to block, I should say, an override of the governor's veto. What's your read on that? Yeah, that really is the point of contention here and the reason why the, the rules were adopted without much debate on a temporary basis, and there will be a further debate on the rules going forward. The, the, there are uh, some changes to the rules, but the one that's really drawing a lot of attention this time is how you would handle a bill that's vetoed. The rule that's been in place for a number of years in the House is 
that once a bill is vetoed, uh, that bill will be placed on the House calendar at some point, and then there is a delay between the time that that bill is calendared and that there could be an actual vote. And that delay gives both parties an opportunity to make sure that everyone is going to be in town, because the, the reason why that's important is you have to have a three-fifths vote to override a veto, but it's a three-fifths vote of the members who are present. And we saw a few years back that there was an opportunity in the state house for the Republicans to override a veto on the state budget when a number of Democrats just didn't show up for a session. They were under the impression, whether correctly or not, that there was not going to be a voting session that day. So only a few of them showed up while all the Republicans were there. And so the Republicans decided, hey, we're here, we've got a quorum, we're going to vote for to override the budget veto. So that, that rule was basically designed to ensure that both parties would know that there's going to be a veto vote. They could make sure that everyone's going to be there so that all votes could be accounted for. The rule change would basically say that once the bill is vetoed and the bill is returned to the House chamber, it could be put on the House calendar at any time without having to have any sort of warning for the the Democrats that this is coming. And why this is drawing quite a bit of attention is the fact that, unlike in the Senate, where the election gave Republicans a veto-proof supermajority, in the House, they're one vote short. They have 71 Republicans versus 49 Democrats. You need a three-fifths majority. So if everyone shows up, that means 72 votes. And so if everyone is there, at least one Democrat would have to vote for the veto override. But if some Democrats aren't there, Republicans could have enough votes to override a veto without them. Which is what Moore says, uh, Speaker Moore says, well, that's what we would work to do is to peel a Democrat away. Uh, and, he, you know, he, he, we don't know if these rules are going to be permanent. We shall see. Um, but uh, this is what prompted Deb Butler to be screaming, I will not yield, Mr. Speaker, shame on you, and all of that, uh, and, of course, prompted the big lie that everybody was off at a 9-11 memorial during that vote, which they were not. Um, so let's, uh, let me hit a couple of these issues that people, uh, this is sort of the conventional wisdom, right? Everybody expects Medicaid expansion to come up for debate and potential passage. Uh, there may be abortion restrictions, medical marijuana, sports betting, and a parental bill of rights. Uh, are those the big ones? Do you see any others? Yeah, those are, you hit the, the highlights, the others that we need to mention, the budget, of mm-hmm. course, because the budget is always the key issue for the General Assembly. It really dictates their schedule. And, of course, when you talk about the budget, that includes things like education spending, raises for state employees, potential tax cuts, economic development incentives, all of those things will be tied up in the budget. And the other thing that we need to keep in mind is new election maps. We know the General Assembly is going to draw a new congressional election map. So the maps we used in 2022, one-time use only. The General Assembly will probably redraw the state Senate map. That is uh, something that will be determined by a three-judge panel, whether that panel will give the Senate another opportunity to draw that map. And there's even potentially talk of redrawing the House election map, although that's a little bit more constitutionally suspect because uh, courts have upheld the revised map that the General Assembly drew for the House. And so for them to go back and redraw the map, they would have to have a new interpretation of the state constitution and what it says about redrawing maps 
in the middle of a decade. So, But we will see some map drawing done, done along with that budget process. Could they make another run at a voter ID law now that they've got maps that courts said were okay? Yeah, it's entirely possible that we'll see another voter ID law. And remember that at the current stage, the constitutional amendment calling for voter ID is still in place. It's under challenge, and it's going to go back before a trial judge. But that amendment is still in place. And while it's in place, the state government is under obligation to come up with a voter ID law. So I suspect that we will see some uh, opportunity to, to look at voter ID and try to come up with something that will survive constitutional scrutiny. Mitch Kokai is the senior political analyst with the John Locke Foundation. You can uh, read his work at Carolina Journal and johnlocke.org. Mitch, always good to talk with you, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pete. Have a good day. You too. Take care. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Got a message here from somebody up in uh, Raleigh who says Phil Berger is five terms ahead of the next group of senators on the seniority list. Five terms ahead of the next most senior group. That's amazing. Um, so let me talk a little bit about the rules decision because Laura Leslie over at WRAL, owned by leftist funder uh, Jim Goodman and uh, his capital broadcasting company, and uh, which is totally separate and there's no interaction or commingling of any kinds of opinions or operations or anything between the guy who writes all of their far left editorials and the in the news department except of course those emails that we saw that actually did that but aside from those like there's no there's there's a wall there's a wall between the two operations so over at WRAL they're very concerned about this and again like for people who don't follow legislative proceedings on a regular basis that now kind of got a peek behind the curtain because of the speaker fight up in DC first of all welcome Second of all, right, the rules that are adopted at the beginning of the legislative sessions are critical. I remember, I don't know even know if they still do this. I haven't checked through this, uh, these rules. And they say they're temporary, but we'll see what happens in another month. Because while they gaveled into session yesterday, they're not, com- they're, they're not going back until, I think, the 28th of January. So they've got a couple weeks where they're going to kind of get everything set up with their committees and everything. Um so it's good, but so it's not like you know they've hit the ground running and they're they're having sessions now. So they got to ramp up. At any rate, they're going to come back and approve over in the House. They're going to approve their set of rules that by which they operate. And I remember there used to be, um, I'm trying to remember who it was. I believe it was Jim Black who uh, set it up, but I, I may be mistaken. Uh, former Speaker of the House out of Mecklenburg County, who had created these roving bands of uh committee members so he had this he had this core group of his loyalists and they would just kind of float around and they would just kind of drop into committee hearings committee meetings in order to cast votes so they were members of every committee they were like they were just like de facto members of every single committee so wherever Jim Black was about to get jammed up on a vote in a committee because, you know, for some reason or another, he didn't have the votes there. And remember, by the end of his term uh, as Speaker of the House, 
you know, he had actually lost the speakership because the uh, the votes were split among Republicans and Democrats. And then, you know, he bribed somebody to flip to be a, a, a Democrat and vote for him. And there was a power sharing deal. The co-speakers or stereo speakers. I went over this, you know, uh, this was about uh, 20 years ago now. And he would I think it was Jim Black had these roving committee members and it was part of his I forget what he called it, but he had, you know, like five or six of these committee members and and they could just kind of drop in on a committee meeting where they knew a, a, a vote that was critical for Jim Black's agenda to get passed. They would just show up and they would all vote how Jim Black wanted them to. So it made a mockery of the committee process, right? So those those are the kinds of rules that get adopted uh, ahead of time, and then they dictate outcomes in the legislative process, much like everybody kind of figured out is happening up in D.C., which is why the holdouts wanted changes to uh, the uh, to the process. Same thing here. Same thing here, because in the House, they've got one vote, uh, they're one vote short of a supermajority. And that means they need, as Mitch Koch guy explained, they need three-fifths of the votes to override a veto of the governor. But that's three-fifths of the votes that are there. Three-fifths of the, uh, of the people voting that are actually in the chamber at that time. So with a one-vote margin of error for Democrats, right, if any one of them is out sick, is playing hooky, is fundraising, is in the bathroom, is not on the floor to cast the vote, just one. Then, re- And if every Republican is there, I mean, the same holds true for the GOP. They have to have all of their people there all the time as well, which, I mean, that really is the outrage here. The demand that they all be at their jobs all the time. It really is a bit much to ask, right? So they all have to be there, and if one Democrat doesn't show up, then the Republicans can call the question, basically. They can ask for a vote on whatever veto override they want to try. And without the Democrat being there, they could win if they have all of their members there. So, of course, everybody's focusing on the Democrats' side of it. Like, oh, I can't believe they have to be here for every single vote. Yeah, well, but so, so do the Republicans. It doesn't work if you got one Republican who's out, then one Democrat can be out and the math is still the same if the more republicans you have missing right the less chance you have of overriding a veto but this is the this is the big concern that democrats are actually going to have to you know show up because the last time see and, and they mentioned this happened when was it in 2019 was it yeah 2019 here we go uh laura leslie describes it as uh the following quote House Republicans were able to override Cooper's veto of their budget plan one morning. It was on September 11th, by the way, 2019. Democrats were missing from the chamber. Many Democrats were absent because they said a GOP leader told them the morning uh, that morning they would not have uh, uh, votes. It would be a non-voting session. Now, Republican leaders uh, disputed that and it kind of fell in the lap of Darren Jackson, who was the House minority leader. You know, he did not communicate to his to his caucus. That's what it looked like to me. But whatever happened, there was miscommunication. Democrats didn't show up. And in fact, they were across the street, according to Deb Butler, who was screaming and yelling, I will not yield, Mr. Speaker. How dare you usurp the authority, blah, blah, blah. And just having a meltdown, Democrats refused to leave. And here's the kicker. First off, they weren't supposed to be drawing maps. 
yeah, the court said you can't be drawing maps outside of the legislative chambers. But they were doing it, and then they were like, well, that didn't apply to us because weren't, they weren't our maps, and we, we weren't part of the lawsuit. So they were trying to gerrymander some maps across the street. That's why they weren't there. But the other thing is, had they just walked out, had they just left, there would not have been a quorum, and there could not have been a vote taken. But they were so hysterical, screaming and, you know, engaging in their magnificent performance for the YouTubers that they forgot the rules. Or maybe they didn't know the rules and they didn't walk off the floor. Had they walked off the floor, they would have blocked the veto vote, the override vote. Know the rules, people. Talk 1110-993-WBT. You can email Pete at thepetecalendarshow.com. The phone number is 704-570-1110 or 1-800-WBT-1110. You can also follow me on the Twitter machine at Pete Calendar. I got a message here from Stan. Uh, He says, Pete, I have noticed a definite improvement in the quality of your show since it began. Well, Stan, that's by design. See, I purposefully started poorly. So this way I would show improvement. Sort of like the No Child Left Behind grading system, right, that was implemented. You start low and then you have big jumps in in improvement, and that's called job security. It says, you replaced the time slot in WBT left vacant by the end of a really successful show. Well, yeah, obviously. Uh, (laughs) Limbaugh. Uh, You had... Really tough shoes to fill. In the beginning, I used to go back and forth between uh, the Buck and Clay show, uh, Dana Lash, and your show. Now I choose your show every day when I can listen. Thank you, Stan. I appreciate it. By the way, the big improvements seem to coincide with your participation in Ph.D. weight loss. Is it possible that had something to do with it? Just trying in my, uh, just trying to do my part and help plug the sponsor. That's very nice. Which, by the way, if you uh, if you do enjoy the program. Uh, thank you. I work hard to bring you quality entertainment and information, but uh, support the the advertisers that make the show possible and make the, the, all the programming possible. That's why you know the advertisers are here in order to try to uh, to get you to become a patron for them, for their business or service. And so, if you like them, please support the advertisers here on WBT. Um, so, even if you don't need to lose any weight, go to PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition anyway. That's what I would recommend. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. You don't need to do that. Uh, all right, so the uh, Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, he did a sit-down with reporters the other day and uh, kind of went over some of the, the big issues that they're going to be looking to move in this legislative session. And as Mitch Koch, I mentioned, the big one is the budget. We'll see about what happens with the education funding piece, so we get to have that fight yet again. I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a prediction. And you know me, I don't like to make a lot of predictions on this uh, kind of stuff, but I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to make a prediction. You ready? I'm going to predict that Democrats and teachers unions, don't call them unions, and media folks are going to make the argument that we need to put more money into K-12 education and specifically teacher salaries. I feel pretty confident making that prediction. Because it's literally the same thing they say every single year. They're re- Part of it is that they're, re- they're trying to recapture 
uh, sort of the the lightning in a bottle that happened for people who are new arrivals to North Carolina. First off, welcome. Uh, secondly, please don't vote the way you voted in the state from which you fled. Um, and then third, uh, there was uh, back in, I guess it was now, yeah, it would have been like 2013. So 10 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Two, yeah, 2013, 2014 time frame. This was after Pat McCrory became governor and the Republicans had a supermajority in both legislative chambers. The Democratic Party of this state had been decimated by scandal, electoral defeats, imprisonments, all sorts of just really bad news after bad news after bad news. The uh, the party was just a husk of its former self. And along comes Reverend William Barber and his Moral Monday movement, which he he called, uh, and they would march on uh, the streets of Raleigh in, uh, into the Capitol every single Monday. And it uh, and this was a uh, this was a left wing funded and uh, organized operation because there was no effective opposition to the Republicans after they had taken control. So this is when they put together the blueprint NC and uh, they came up with the eviscerate, agitate, litigate. I don't remember what the other eight was. There was like four of them. So and this was their little mantra that they would use. And they uh, it was, you know, it's a, it's the whole constellation of all of the leftist groups in the state funded by, like, for example, Jim Goodman and his uh, uh, all of his wealth. He's the owner of Capital Broadcast Company that owns WRAL, which is totally separate and doesn't at all have any kind of commingling of attitudes or stories or leads or sourcing or anything. So uh, but the guy who writes the editorials for. Jim Goodman at Capital Broadcast. That guy is Seth Efron, and he is the former comms guy for former governors Mike Easley and Bev Perdue, Democrats. Anyway, Pat McCrory's in office, supermajority Republicans, and uh, Barber starts organizing the, the, the Moral Monday Movement, or as I called it, the Momomo. The Moral Monday Movement. And, uh, or sometimes just the Moral Mondays, and that was just Momo. Because at first it was just Momo, then it became Momomo, because it became a movement, they said. And what they harnessed at the time was the Red for Ed union operations. And because teachers in North Carolina had had their pay frozen, they had been furloughed, not by Republicans, but by Democrats. See, Democrats spent so many years busting the budgets of the state and so poorly managing Medicaid that we had a, we had like a, I think it was two billion dollar budget shortfall just there was it was called a structural deficit it wouldn't go away every single year there was more and more deficit and so democrats they just kept passing well what do they do right if you got a a deficit if you're a democrat what do you do there's only one answer that's right it's raise taxes and so that's what they did they'd raise all these taxes on people one of them was was a temporary quote-unquote sales tax which was not temporary, spoiler alert, it turned out not to be temporary. It finally got repealed when Republicans won control in 2010. But that's what Democrats would do. They, I remember one year, tax refunds were withheld. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if Republicans had, were to do such a thing, to withhold people's tax refunds because they needed them to pay salaries at the state? They eventually did pay them, 
but they withheld them for months. They used your money in order to pay their bills because I'm sure they would allow you to totally do the same. Anyway, that was the status, the state of affairs. Yes, Greg, Democrats in disarray. That's right. <laughs> They're in disarray. They were in disarray. So that was the that, that, that was the status of the Democratic Party. Barber comes in and does the Momo, and the teachers who are so upset about their pay being frozen, them being fired and furloughed and all of this, they hooked up with the Momo, and it created this big crowd. Well, after Republicans went about revising and reforming and revamping the teacher compensation schedules to make it, you know, guaranteed teachers get a pay raise every single year of $1,000. Every year, $1,000, step increase, boom. Under the Democrat plan, there were like eight steps, and they came at like all these different years of seniority. It didn't make any sense. So after Republicans did all of those changes, a lot of teachers were like, okay, I got what I wanted. I'm out. And then the, the crowd sizes dwindled, and so now it wasn't – it didn't have quite the effect at that point. So we're going to get to see that. Again, in North Carolina, yay, fight over teacher compensation and education spending because of the Leandro lawsuit, right? This Leandro school funding lawsuit that was brought 30-something years ago and worked its way through the courts and the state Supreme Court. Just before the Democrats got voted out of office, they made sure to force this the, the Leandro ruling to bypass the normal uh, court of appeals, right? They fast-tracked it. They took the case. They ruled on it, and they were like, you got to you got to pay. So they essentially took over the power of the purse from the legislative branch, creating a constitutional crisis that now we're going to have to sort through. Thanks a lot, Democrats, for that one. Um, so we shall see what happens in this budget cycle with education funding. We've also got Medicaid expansion that Republicans were opposed to for 10 years. Now, uh, I guess the hospitals have finally convinced them. And um, what else? Do we, oh, abortion restrictions. We could see abortion restrictions, which, of course, is what all of the state media is focused on because it's like a sacrament So uh, for them. So they're focused on that one. That's the big deal for them. And also we got betting. We got a parent's bill of rights. Uh, we got marijuana legalization and we got redistricting. So it should be a fun session. Talk 1110-993-WBT. I was not aware of this until my uh, my dad sent me a message here that says, Today is Rush Limbaugh's birthday. I did not know that. Uh, God bless him for all that he did to bring forward the rebirth of talk radio. Uh, Rush did so much to help preserve the exceptionalism of America. I grew up listening to Limbaugh. I remember the first time I, I heard Limbaugh's show. I was with my brother... Uh, who was two years older than I am, and we, it was a summer, and I guess he was back from college, I want to say, or, yeah, I guess he was back from college. Maybe he was a senior in high school, and it was so, it was summertime, and my dad was working someplace, and they had bought a new building, and so rather than, you know, hire professionals to tear down all of the office cubicles and stuff that had been set up in this place. He had me and my brother go <laughs> and tear all of the cubicles apart. And, um, and so while we were there, uh, it was lunchtime and we went out to the car to eat our lunch. And that's the first time I think that I remember hearing it. But I mean, we grew up listening to 
talk radio in the form of WNYC, which was the NPR affiliate up in New York City. And they had a kid's show. It was called Kids America. Originally, I think it was called Small Things Considered. <laughs> and then they changed it. And, um, and so that was what we were used to hearing because that's what dad would listen to when he drove back and forth into the city to go to work. And, um, and then along comes Limbaugh. And that was the first time I remember ever hearing his show. And I remember hearing the, what was it, the Lumberjack? <laughs> what was the, the, he would do like these, was it the environmental updates, right, where he would have the chainsaw going in the background, <laughs> cutting down trees. And it was funny. And I got his book. I read his book. And, uh, yeah, I've listened to him my entire adult life. And so happy birthday, Rush, and thank you for giving me the career that I have because I would not be here. I would not be doing this. Uh, if not for Limbaugh. Um, let me see. I got a message here from the Hellion on Twitter. And he says, I agree on that on Stan's email on the comments just now. I tried to listen to Buck and Clay, but they're really not in range anyhow. But when they are, they're just too flash cardish for me. That, yeah. No, I mean I get that. There, everybody has their own style, and people uh, people have different um, tastes. You know, I understand my show is not for everybody. There's like point zero three percent of the population that doesn't enjoy my program. I I can't explain it. Everyone has their own tastes, and I, like and some people, there's like another point oh oh three percent. I think they um, they listen and they. Uh, they get very agitated, and it's not good for their mental health. And so for those folks, I actually encourage them not to listen. I don't want to be the cause of somebody's mental health crisis. And so I, I urge people, don't listen to my show if I'm going to anger you to the point where you become sort of unhinged and detached from reality and you you, you can't think straight. Like it's you. This is just as, as Limbaugh outlined in his book, you know, it's entertainment, it's information, it's both. And, and that's the thing that a lot of people misread about Limbaugh. And I think that's why Rush understood, and I kind of do as well, Donald Trump's sense of humor. It's very dry. It's very deadpan. You never know. Like, that's part of the thing. Like you don't, you're not really sure. Is he cracking a joke here or not? And, and a lot of people in the press, because they hate him so much, I think, primarily. But there's also a lot of people that don't understand the humor. Limbaugh was hilarious to me. Like, I always understood when he was doing things, he was making jokes. I could. It's entertainment. It's humor, and you convince a lot more people of things through humor, I think, than you know, droning on about you know policy and the you know wonkishness. Like, so here here's a perfect example. I'm driving in today, and I flip over as I do because you always got to monitor the enemy. And so I uh, <laughs> I just tuned into. Uh, to the, the NPR affiliate. And full disclosure, I worked there. I used to work there. Right out of college, I worked there. I mailed people their coffee mugs. If you got a coffee mug or a bumper sticker or a canvas bag between the years of uh, 1996 through 98, I sent it to you. You're welcome. I'm a giver. And so uh, I, I, I bumped over there and I listened. And they've got three different guests on for a roundtable discussion about abortion restrictions. And every single one of them are pro-abortion. That's, and, and it's, and it was boring. Absolutely boring. I remember one time when I was working over there 
and there was a topic that was brought up for discussion. And, uh, you know, I had the station on and I'm listening to it. And uh, the and let me just say somebody in a position of authority comes by and says, you hear this topic? This is an example of a really great topic that's covered very poorly. And so I listened to it for that to, to understand what he meant by that. And he was right. It could have been a real, it was about housing and mortgages and something like that, but it was so dry and it was so NPR, right? It was so boring. But if you think about it, it's a really important topic. And I said, you know, like, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to be entertaining and informative. Well, at least one, if not both, but I strive for one, at least I figure, I figure if I can deliver 50% of the time. I'll be successful 100% of the time. I don't think that makes sense.